0: If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. You ever been around somebody that was just very gifted with something that they knew well? They were gifted and you were absolutely in awe that they knew more about something than you did. Whether it was that mechanic that you grew up with growing, you know, as a as a young boy and you watched your father go bring him, bring it to his shop. Or whether it was that teacher in school that you were just fascinated how much history they knew. Each one of us has been impressed by somebody else and what they've been gifted with. What tends to happen for many of those situations though is that those people sometimes, I don't know if you've ever seen this, they move on to something else. There's something else that they move on to. Whether it's another city, another state, they move on to something else that they are now called to in life. What saddens many in the church is that there are certain ministries that all of us want to participate in, and then there are others that, eh, they're not so flashy. They're not so impressive to do. And yet God calls all of us to different tasks. And though some of those tasks may not be something that's more up front in the limelight, if you will, it doesn't negate the fact that it's just as equally important. Today, we're going to be talking about making a shift. Each one of us at different points in our lives are going to have to make a shift when it comes to our walk with God and ministry towards others. You're not always going to be doing the same thing every day. There are seasons in life where you're going to be specifically ministering to one demographic and potentially a different demographic as you get older. In fact, that's one of the reasons why a lot of churches will hire certain people based on certain demographics to to work with that group of people. Well, God's model is the model of elders and deacons. And the standard there is men that are qualified, full of the Holy Spirit, that are able to teach others also. As we look at the text this morning, we're going to be looking at three specific things here, dealing with redirection and making a shift. Number one, the redirection, Acts 12, 25, 25. uh, Through 13.5. Number two, the opposition, Acts 13.6 through 8. And number three, the realization. We see here that the the text itself brings our attention right back to Paul and Barnabas once again. We had just been speaking on Peter a few weeks ago and the termination of Herod by an angel, right? We, We explained that touched by an angel had a totally different meaning there than what most people imply. Um, We ended with the incredible truth that God's Word still grows and multiplies. Nothing can stop it from going forward. So as we turn the attention once again to Paul and Barnabas, I want us to specifically look at this text in number one, the redirection, verses 25 of Acts chapter 12 through uh, chapter 13, verse 5. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. They also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch there was there were certain prophets and teachers Barnabas Simeon who was called Niger Lucius of Cyrene Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the tetrarch and Saul as they ministered to the Lord and fasted the Holy Spirit said Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them Now having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them they sent them away so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. So what we see here is that Paul and Barnabas, they go back to deliver the gift, right? The church of Antioch has a financial gift that they wanted to provide to the church of Jerusalem, and so they they traveled back to deliver that gift. And by the way, just for your information, I'm sure most of you realize this, but Saul and Paul, I'm going to use them interchangeably. If I use one, I'm using the other, just just so you're, you're on the same page. John Mark here is connected to Barnabas as his cousin or potentially his nephew. Some commentators will debate that a little bit. The trip here from Antioch to Jerusalem, though, was over 500 miles. So you can imagine that was quite a trip. They didn't have a Toyota to drive for that. Um, Another interesting point, though, is that many miss this point in the text. Earlier on, when Peter gets released from prison, right, guess whose house he shows up to? John Mark's mother's house. So what you're seeing here is that he has great examples all around him of faithful people. In fact, his home was a place of discipleship, if you will. People came to his house. And so John Mark joins with Paul and Barnabas here. Another point that's missed is the gift that was sent to Jerusalem was ultimately from a Gentile-centered church to a Jewish-centered church, if you will, or primarily Jewish church, primarily Gentile, primarily Jewish church emphasizing the importance of support for your fellow brethren in Messiah. The text goes on to specifically state that five men were important to this local church that is discussed here in Antioch. We have Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaen, and Saul. We're not going to deal with Barnabas and Saul. We've dealt with him, them previously. Go back through the series. You'll, you'll get specifics on that. I'm not going to deal with them this morning. But Simeon, called Niger, is more than likely a reference to his skin color, which would mean that he's probably an a- of African descent. Lucius of Cyrene was out of, out of Africa as well, showing us right up front that race was not a factor in the early church. As one commentator points out, if the phrase of Cyrene may be understood as a modifier of both Simeon and Lucius, who is next named, It would add probability to the supposition that this man, this is amazing, this is great. This man is the same as the Simon who bore the cross of Jesus and was the father of Alexander and Rufus in Mark chapter 15. I'm just going to read that really quick for you. Then they compelled the certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Isn't that fascinating? You may very well actually have Simon in the early church having a connection with Christ years previously bearing the cross on the road to Calvary. Wouldn't that be something? When it says in the text that they compelled Simon, I'm sure that he didn't have much of an option. You know, you know the old uh, mafia style? We're compelling you to do this. It's probably not a real option. What's interesting here is Menaean could very well be the foster brother to Herod. In In some way, the Herod that killed John the Baptist. We see here, these men are vital ministers or prophets to the early church, speaking the truth of God's word, expositing the scripture and encouraging the congregation. These men worked together in the local church in Antioch in ministry. They must have cared for things like the needs of the people. They visited and taught the new converts. Obviously, we saw Paul and Barnabas particularly were there early, right, to teach for a full year. So they're discipling these, these people. They even took some time, as this text says, to fast as well. This is a lost practice in the church today. Many of us do not practice fasting probably talk about that in the future. While they're doing these things, God redirects the focus of the ministry, but not the ministry of all of them, just two of them, Saul or Paul and Barnabas. The Holy Spirit wants something different for both of them. A couple things that are worth noting about this redirection. First of all, these men were sent out in the context of a local church. Understanding their call is starting from that. These were not some immature men trying to do some cool new hip ministry that we see happening constantly in America today. These were serious matters to the point that you see the church fasting about this and praying before they lay hands on them for this redirection. There are too many people in the church today believing their call to a certain ministry based on their personal feelings. Something they felt after some moving message, some song they heard, mom and dad told them they were gifted in this thing, Um, an emotional experience at an event, right? They went to a conference and this is what they believe they need to do. With little or no involvement in the local church, there's no solid confirmation. You see, if you want to do something for God, you and I need to realize a lot of that context needs to be in the local church. It's there for a reason. What you and I don't need is a false assurance of a calling that comes from a personal preference or emotional experience. When we may not have been consistently in the Word ourselves, prayed consistently, or even fasted, never mind on that. One of the things that seems to be missing in today's culture when it comes to a new ministry that started or a sending of new missionaries that the early church understood is that the early church, just as Jesus taught, they sent out in teams. Many church ministries are built around individuals, it's dangerous. Look no further than Ravi Zacharias. Very dangerous. One sure way to fail at ministry is to do it all by yourself. It will more than likely fail if only one person does it all. Church, I realize one important truth, and I know many times some of you wonder why I ask that you study the word for yourselves. I need you to study the word for yourself so you can hold me accountable as well. If I'm the only point of authority, that's a danger to me and to you. There are plenty of good preachers with excellent sermons, but they all pale in comparison to the unfiltered Word of God, which is why that's where you should go first. This church understood what God was doing by calling Paul and Barnabas was something that they needed to get behind. One of the best ways to find out what God would like you and I to serve in is to see how others respond in what we're doing. In the local church... You're usually going to get a good sense of whether or not what you're doing is what the the church would like. How many of you have ever seen anybody complain when someone doesn't do it the right way? Am I the only one? How many of us have ever been that person that goes, of all people, that person's doing this? We've all been there, right? We've all done that. The reality is, is all of us are gifted differently. And when we are gifted with something that somebody else should be doing, it'll come out. It'll become obvious. You see, these other men were there to stay still in that local church to continue ministering there. They weren't done. They weren't moving on. In fact, what, from what I can see in the text and, and reading the previous chapters, Paul and, Paul and Barnabas had already taught a lot of these people quite a bit. They were stable enough to keep going. If you remember, Barnabas brought Paul back in chapter 11 to help his church here build their doctrine. At this time, we know that they are more than likely, more than just a little gifted to take on the the task. God was ready to move on Paul and Barnabas to a different location and minister to others. In fact, what they do is they went to Salamis, which is a very large town in Cyprus. It's on an island, over 70 miles from Antioch. The population there was essentially Greek with Hellenistic Jews living there. Paul and Barnabas preached at the synagogue as was their custom. Scripture does not tell us much of what happened in Salamis, but in Paphos we clearly see that they were faced with opposition, which is our second point. Number two, the opposition. Chapter 13, verses 6 through 8. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith so here in this actual text we see that there's a large temple in this in this actual city pathos built up aphrodite it was the greek goddess that was renamed from astor originally according to one source it's believed that the first king to worship aphrodite canarius decided to build the sanctuary in honor of the goddess He constructed it nearby from where she birthed from the sea. The myth that Canaris used the shrine as a symbol of a wedding, Aphrodite threw sleeping with temple prostitutes and an incestual practice of marrying his own daughters since royal lineage was matrilineal. This created the continual ritual lovemaking with strangers at the site. Yeah, this is the place that Paul and Barnabas decided to go because God called them to minister. See, these are the little details that you need to do some digging outside the Word of God to get. And this is what we do in D-Group. If you're not involved, this is part of practice when we're looking at certain texts, is getting the background of the text. In case you were wondering, I want you to join one if you haven't. It is in this context that Paul and Barnabas, two men that are of significant importance, are met by in the city. Number one is Sergius Paulus, which is one of the Roman government officials appointed by the Roman Senate, and a who's also called Bargesus, is a Jewish sorcerer, false prophet, who apparently had quite the influence on Sergius. He more than likely learned his astrology from Babylon. Sergius, who's said to be an intellectual man, he's intelligent, he wanted to hear more from Paul. He was one of those, just like the Greeks on Mars Hill, they wanted to learn some more. They wanted to hear some more. But he got pushed back due to Lamus or Bar-Jesus, if you will. He didn't want this access given to them. In fact, what's interesting is Bar-Jesus essentially means son of Jesus. There may be some reason why he did this. By way of application, believer... Just as we see with Bar-Jesus, he feels threatened that his way is now going to be taken away from him, if you will, his actual power, his prestige. You need to be understanding that when you share the gospel with certain people, you may be threatening their territory. You may be threatening those that are over them. How many of you realize that most people that you read, you meet, sorry, read, hopefully you read people too, that's a good thing. Um, Most people that you and I meet, we find that they have people that have taught them before. Or maybe currently are teaching them. And when you and I bring the gospel to somebody that is not privy to the scripture, they don't understand the word of God, uh, they know very little of the Bible, you need to understand that if if they have somebody that's really been influencing them, they're going to feel threatened by that. And that's normal. You should expect that. You know, when when somebody comes from a Jewish background and a Christian tells them they're not completed without Christ, that's going to come across offensively. When a Muslim in certain countries is told that one of their family members converted to Christianity, that's a threat to them. Because this is no longer Christ being accepted as a prophet, this is Christ accepted as God. You should not be surprised by opposition if you're sharing the gospel with people. I don't know why Christians are so stunned by it sometimes. Oh my goodness, they got upset. Welcome to the club. It's been that way all along. Which is the reason why many of us just shut up completely, which is not the right response. Those outside the faith may be envious of the influence of the gospel in their community their place of employment, their own family and friends. What happens is many times there's a culture shock to people like that. What do you mean this is sinful to live this life? I know another church that doesn't say that. You see, we, when we preach Christ, we have nothing to be ashamed of, church. The only thing we, you and I have to be ashamed of is our own sin. That's it. But guess what? We have the remedy for that. His righteousness. People don't need a self-righteous hypocrite. They need a genuine person that shares the gospel with them and tells them the truth, though. And nothing but the truth. Embrace the opposition. Confront it head-on, believer. It's coming. It's always going to be there. But number three, let's look at the realization. Acts 13, 9-12. Then Saul, who also was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So what we see here is the Apostle Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, wants to make sure he just loves on this man. And he tells him, Brother, God has a plan for your life. Now, It's not at all what happens here. What's Paul's response? Sounds very lovely, doesn't it? This is what most churches teach today, that every response needs to be super loving and adorable to people. Uh, Let me read this again. Let's make sure we quote Paul correctly. Oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? How's that for loving? according to our culture. Paul is pronouncing judgment on him. The one who considers himself enlightened was now to be committed to blindness for the fraud that he was. So here's a question. What was the result of this harsh rebuke? See, this is what happens in the world. Everybody's like... Christians are just not nice enough. There's a difference between nice and kind. I know I've explained it to you before. You can be firm and speak the truth. You don't have to be nasty, but you still can speak the truth and be very direct. The salvation of Sergius Paulus was the result of this rebuke that Paul had towards this man. Because he realized that Bargius was a fake... And Paul was the real thing. This is the essential to much of our gospel ministry. Being concerned with being loving enough, kind enough, saying the right things is not the point of being faithful to many of us. Being faithful is the most important thing. What God's called you to do, you ought to do. Paul's response clearly demonstrated to Sergius that Paul's faith was the real deal. And that Barjesus was just a pony, uh, pony, phony, whose power he was afraid of losing. Now I want to I want to park on something here today. I think many in the church have essentially watered down the the gospel in our culture. Here we don't even have a gospel presentation laid out by Paul that convinces Sergius. At least, not what's spelled out in the text we have a confrontation by the power of the Holy Spirit between a demonic entity who Bargias participated with and the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit. And Paul's response leads to the the realization of the gospel for Sergius. If anyone reads through the book of Acts, they'll see a different approach to those that are seeking, like the Philippian jailer, which we'll cover weeks later. The gospel delivered to Cornelius that Peter delivered. And those that also stood in opposition, right? Such as the Cyrenians that opposed Stephen. Oh, wait, that's around this. Earth. Yeah. Very similar spot. I wouldn't be surprised if some of them knew who Paul was coming back. Or even here with Bar-Jesus. There is not a reason for many of us to share the gospel because many times what we feel is we're inadequate and if we do do it it'll always offend somebody so we stop sharing there's this nice approach that many churches have today that misses the point of the gospel when men of the world oppose the church of God and what it's doing in the community the church instead of backing her brother standing up for their faith they end up going well they just need to be more quiet They shouldn't have said so much. Their stance on homosexuality they should have just kept to themselves. They didn't need to mention God's stance on morality. After all, we're all hypocrites, right? Listen, church, just because you and I sin does not mean we we don't get to speak God's truth on sin. Don't buy into that garbage. And this is the way a lot of Christians parent their kids. Well, I screwed up when I was younger, so I better not tell them anything. That's not the right stance it's unbiblical how are you supposed to raise children that are fearing God if you don't want to fear God and telling them the truth if only they were just a little more gracious and kind and not said it so harshly when they got the pushback from the evil child sacrificing organization called Planned Parenthood they might be better off I don't know if you realize this church But those people that expose Planned Parenthood, they've paid a dear price for that. And you know what's even more disgusting? A lot of churches didn't back them on it. Just because you and I can be hypocrites does not make the truth of sin any less serious. Here's the truth. All of us need to repent. That's exactly the whole point. The work itself was done by Christ completely. We are saved by good works. The good works of Christ. Not ours. He finished and paid it all. We only bring our own sin to the equation. Sadly, if Paul was getting pushback from someone today and responded with the way he just did here, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, most Christians would be calling him out for being unloving. In fact, they'd probably be quoting 1 Corinthians 13 to him. Love suffers long and is kind, Paul. Paul wrote it. He knows what he's talking about. And I don't think you and I need to correct him. This is the imbalance in the church today. And church, we better not fall for this garbage. There are times to confront and there are times to be kind and gentle to people. The people that Jesus was most kind and gentle with were the ones that already realized they were destitute. The people that he confronted were the self-righteous Pharisees that constantly got their way and tried to impose things on others that they themselves never followed. Unless you think only hypocrisy exists in the church, it exists in the world with our leaders telling everybody what they ought to do that they themselves don't do. And, church, we ought to, ought, to, ought to apply this standard across the board. No exceptions, whether it's in our local church or in the community or in our government. It has to be the same standard across the board. Don't expect from others what you yourself don't want to practice. Paul writes the letter to the Corinthians and all people think of is 1 Corinthians 13 and how love needs to sit there and tolerate all sorts of garbage. It's not loving. You want to talk about love and God is love? God sent his son to die for sin. That's love. Why did he have to do it? Because of our sin. There's a confrontation that all of us need to be honest about our sin is what put Jesus on the cross our being nice doesn't get us to heaven context determines response Christianity in America assumes that we just need to be nice to people well nice people don't end up on a cross church especially when they're they're opposing the religious leaders of that day Nice people don't end up getting stoned to death as Stephen did for calling people out on resisting the Holy Spirit and killing the prophets before him. In fact, what's incredible about the gospel is that Paul was at Stephen's stoning himself and was on a rampage to kill more Christians who would have ever thought that Paul would be just as offensive as Stephen talking to other people. It's time to tell people the truth in whatever means necessary. God calls us to stop worrying about offending. Because the reality is the gospel will offend. As John MacArthur states, don't ever water down the gospel. If the truth offends, then let it offend. People have been living their whole lives in offense to God. Let them be offended for a while. You see, we, we see the end result of this whole confrontation. A person gets saved. Sergius is watching this whole thing play out, and he believes the gospel. Believer, you need to understand that when you and I confront somebody in opposition to the truth of the gospel, especially when they're harsh and nasty, there are people on the sideline watching. We shouldn't just duck and run. We need to stand up for the truth. So in conclusion, here's the question. Do you need to make a shift? There are multiple things that I mean by this. Is there a ministry shift that you might need to take? Is there something else that God may want you to do that others may have mentioned, but you've been pushing back against doing? You see, there are things in the church that you can be involved in and a lot of us hesitate because, well, I don't want to get too overcommitted. We'll start somewhere. If you're not here for prayer, join us for prayer next Sunday, 10-15. Keep meeting. If you're not in small groups, come talk to me. Doug, Mark, we'd love to have you. If you're not in discipleship group, please let me know. I'd love to get you in one. Maybe you need to make a shift in how you approach others when it comes to trying to do big things for God. Maybe you need to be a part of the church of God to know how to minister to the church of God. Maybe many of us miss the basics that give us direction. You see, what's hard for me as a pastor to tell you to do in the church is for me to tell you to skip Bible reading, Bible memorization, prayer, and then have you serve in the church and assume that you're going to do a good job at it. You can't neglect the first things. This is why the church stopped loving Jesus the way they ought to. Maybe you and I need to make a shift in how we approach others when it comes to the gospel. I get it. Many of us don't want to come across offensively and I know that there are different personalities. Some of us are more outgoing. Some of us are more closed off. I don't believe that God calls us to be the same exact way. God gave you a certain personality for a reason. But that does not mean that you and I should not be bold for the gospel. You and I don't get to pick our way through life of what we want to do for God and not want to do for God. We ought to commit fully as a disciple of His. You and I should not go out of our way to pick a fight with other people. But we also shouldn't ignore the seriousness of opposition that we may face and a proper response to that situation. Now, if you're watching this online, and a lot of this seems just ridiculous to you as you're checking this out, I want you to realize that your sin is detestable, it's vile before God, and you do need to repent. You need to turn away from your sin, trust Christ. This isn't some magic formula, say certain words or anything like that, and you're in heaven. This is a commitment to follow him as a disciple. God has different tasks assigned for us in the church. Let's make sure that we are committed to him first. Truth will always offend, it always has, it always will. Let's stop hiding behind it. Let's preach it boldly.